welcome to Speak Your Truth Now. My name is Amanda, and I'm joined by Mallory and our special guest, Cameron. Since we all know that the election is uh, drawing near, we wanted to do a deep dive into voting as a follow-up to episode three. Also, if you haven't voted yet, go vote. I think a lot of the people that are listening in have probably heard this multiple times, but this election is probably one of the most important elections of our lifetime. Not only do we need to stress the importance of voting in 2020 for our next president, but we need to also be aware, you know, of our impact down the ballot. Uh, where races for, you know, Senate and House of Representatives are very close races in a lot of states. And of course, not to mention, you know, more local positions as well in, you know, cities and counties. So voting is your civic duty. To kind of get us started, in episode three, we touched on topics like voter suppression, disenfranchisement, and so we'll kind of be talking a little bit more about those issues to start and these issues that have actually been unfolding over the past couple of months. So Cameron, would you like to start off first? Yeah, so um, uh, some of the things that I have been looking at recently, I've been following voting in a bunch of different states pretty closely. And one thing that I noticed um, was people wearing Black Lives Matter shirts to the polls. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did read an article about it. It's, there's one, one polling worker was fired because they told people to turn their shirts inside out or they couldn't vote. And one person who was wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt was being asked to leave and wear a different shirt. But then when they talked to the polling manager at that location, they said, oh no, you can vote with that. Mm -hmm. And I think something to note here is that Black Lives Matter is not associated with any particular campaign. And that's really the the crux of the matter, I guess, is that in some states, you cannot wear campaign slogans or campaign shirts to the polls. Um, They have very strict rules about that kind of stuff. The campaigns themselves can't have campaign signs within a certain distance of the polling location as well. So that's why those things are not allowed. But like I said, Black Lives Matter is not associated with either campaign, right? It's just, it's an independent organization. And so you are allowed to wear those kind of things to the polls. Um, but I think that's really interesting um, things that have come up a couple of times. Uh, I think it also happened with some people wearing I Can't Breathe masks as well. Mm. But again, that's not associated with any political campaign. So I think it's important to note that learn the rules of your state, right? You can't wear campaign slogans and stuff like that. But also know that you have rights and that you are allowed to vote if you're wearing just an independent organization's slogan or something. Yeah, that actually reminds me of something that I was reading the other day. I guess it varies from state to state, but some states don't allow you to bring guns to voting locations. And Mm -hmm. I see there's been like a lot of talk around guns and how they can be used as kind of like an intimidation tactic for people to, you know, the people that are coming out to vote early, they're packing these like assault rifles on their backs. (laughs) I'm sorry, can we just pause and just acknowledge how bizarre it is that people are just showing up to vote like fully armed and loaded like that that is ludicrous like listening to you talk right now like right. I, I i think i dis disassociated for a moment i was like wait what what why would you do that <laughs> yeah like it's that's horrifying that's terrible yeah it was actually just recently oh. ruled in michigan in michigan that they were allowed to do that still yes uh, yes that is yeah. crazy and i hadn't really thought about it actually that from state to state, there are different rules around voting, you know, what's allowed, what's not allowed. And so I thought that was really interesting. I, it just never crossed my mind that, you know, people would be coming, you know, with those types of guns. And it's obviously um, a statement. And it's not necessary to walk around with a gun, you know, when you go vote. So Mm-hmm. I definitely understand how it can be seen as, you know, intimidation. Yeah. I also want to be clear that the people with guns are not allowed to enter the polling location with a gun. That's still illegal in most places, um, including in Michigan. But they're allowed to be poll watchers 
with the guns. Mm, really? Gotcha. Uh, That's and disturbing. So, yeah. Right. So it's 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 that kind of intimidation, right? So they're not necessarily allowed to be in the polling precinct with that, but they're allowed to be a poll watcher. Now, there are a lot of laws that I don't know all of them, but there are a lot of laws around poll watchers and what they're allowed to do. Are they allowed to talk to voters? Are they allowed to, or they're just required to stand there and not say anything and stuff right. like that. And it varies from state to state what they're allowed to do. But poll watching is something that is still legal. Like it was banned by the Republican National Convention for a long time, but mm-hmm. that ban was lifted before the 2018 election because they only, they only did it for like 37 years. Um, poll watching is now, you know, technically an approved activity by the Republican National National Convention now. So Yeah. And, you know, another thing that we've been noticing too is a lot of people obviously are voting by mail a lot more than normal because of COVID. And so there's been some drama in Texas, um, one of the places. And I don't know if you guys have read about that, the fact that there's only one drop-off box for ballots per county. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that was crazy. <laughs> yeah, they keep going back and forth. It was allowed for a little bit that they could put more than one box. And then it was disallowed by the Texas Supreme Court. And, and the voting right groups are now suing again to try to get more ballot drop-off boxes. But I mean, at this point, it's a little too late now, right? The election's happening uh, right. very soon. Yeah. So it's unlikely that they're going to get more ballot drop-off boxes. And it just amazes me that Harris County, which is where Houston is, has you know, 4.7 million people and one drop-off box. Yeah, um, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and even like, you know, like battleground states like Ohio. Um, I have an acquaintance who lives in Ohio, and she was saying that they, um, for early voting, each county gets one polling place per county to early vote. Like that, I mean, wow. like that's, that's crazy. Like Ohio, you know, is always, and it's true again this year, Ohio is always such an important swing state. And the fact that they only have one place per county open to early vote is crazy. I mean, they're they're going to play a huge role in deciding, you know, who wins this upcoming election. Yeah, and right. Ohio actually just said that they were going to report results on election night. But if they hadn't counted everything yet, then they were not going to report any more results until like two weeks later after they had officially counted everything. So we might wow. not even know Ohio's results for like two weeks after the election. Because they're going to report stuff on election night, but then if they still have a lot of stuff to count, then they're not going to report it until it's officially certified. Right. And we know that there's a lot of issues, too, with filling out ballots and the fact that they can be rejected for a lot of different reasons. I didn't know if you wanted to talk about South Carolina. Yeah, so South Carolina, they've been going back and forth on signatures since the primaries and saying that you had to have a witness signature or you didn't have to have a witness signature. But they recently just ruled in South Carolina they cannot reject a ballot for a mismatch signature. So normally your signature has to match the signature that's on file with the government. So for example, when you get your license, you sign for your license and then they save that. And then they would take your signature on your ballot and compare it to the signature that you have for your license. That's kind of an imprecise science already, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, just, people, it's just people sitting there comparing signatures. And they've had training, but, you know, we don't know how much training they've had and that kind of stuff or how long they've been doing this and how far off does it have to be to be mismatched. (laughs) So voting rights groups were suing and saying you can't reject ballots just for a mismatched signature. So we'll see how that goes. I'm sure that people were going to appeal that decision. But yeah. Uh, Yeah. And some states I know, like if, you know, your ballot is rejected for like, you know, a signature mismatch, like they will alert you and you can, you know, take steps to fix it. But not all states allow that. Like I know, for example, Colorado, if you are notified that your ballot has been rejected, then you can, you do have a chance to go out and fix it. But not all states will let you go back and do that. Like if you messed it up the first time, sorry, nothing we can do about it. Your vote doesn't count. Wow. Yeah. So that's called curing your ballot. They've been talking a lot about, about that in North Carolina recently as well, because North Carolina does notify people of rejection. And I will note that some states notify you, like you were saying, but then some states, you have to check the status yourself. Like I'm in Georgia and I did an absentee ballot, but they didn't notify me with whether it was accepted or rejected. I had to go online to my voter page and look to see if it was accepted or rejected. 
they still allow you to fix it if it was rejected, but you have to be proactive in checking to see if it was rejected or not. Yeah. I mean, when you think about all these different things, they're acts to, well, I believe, and a lot of people believe that they're acts to suppress voting. I mean, what other reason would we have all of these crazy rules and why would we make it harder for people to vote? So it's very counterintuitive. And especially since everyone's always saying vote, 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 but the government really does make it hard to vote. (laughs) And I really don't understand why we can't as a nation decide that we want voting to be easy for everyone. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like I will say like moving to a new state, uh, Colorado does, I think pretty much everyone does mail-in ballots here. That's pretty much the standard. But it was so different, you know, voting here this year versus voting in the past in Georgia, where I have had to wait in long lines and stuff. And the people on the ballot weren't, you know, very exciting or anything like that. But like Colorado, they make it stupidly easy. Like you before you even get your ballot, you get these two little books and they explain all of the measures on, you know, your ballot for any amendments or any changes like that. And they will give you the pro and con, a summary of it, the original text, and like all this information that like I I spent a couple hours just pouring over that little blue book and doing some research online. And like I did all my research and then my ballot was just sitting right there so I could just fill it out from the comfort of my own home and go on a nice little walk to the botanical gardens and drop off my ballot. Like it was like, honestly, it was quite a lovely voting experience compared to voting in Georgia in the past. Right. Yeah. No, I had a similar um, experience as well. I mean, we've been pretty lucky that voting for us has been pretty easy. And, you know, when we're talking about ballot rejections too, Cameron, I know that you kind of brought this up to us, but the fact that Black voters ballots in North Carolina are being rejected at more than four times the rate of white voters. So, you know, what's going on there? Yeah, so I mean, I think part of it is that they just don't really know all the reasons, right? The reasons for the ballots being rejected varied. So some of it was not having a witness signature. Some of it was having like the naked ballot. And then there's this kind of other category, which just says spoiled. Could be various things. Could be that it's water damaged or it was filled out wrong or, you know, whatever the reason may be, it's just spoiled. It's interesting to look at the numbers, come back and say, hey, like black voters, ballots are being rejected at a higher rate and you don't necessarily know why. And maybe part of it is just the education of all voters, like educating everybody about how to vote and and how to vote with mail-in ballots. But some of it could just be that a lot of black voters, this is their first time voting um, through mail-in voting. And so therefore they might do something wrong, something like that. It could just be their first time voting at all, right? So we know that in the past that there has been a lot of lower turnout for black voters, especially in Southern states. And some of that, if some of that we talked about before, right? Intimidation tactics and voter suppression. And so this may be their first year voting. And because it's a pandemic, it may also be their first time voting by mail. So it could just be that we're seeing more of this because people just don't know how to vote. But really, we don't know all the reasons. And we're not going to know all the reasons until some more research has been done about it, you know? Yeah. And I did want to kind of get back to voting and our experience voting. All of us have voted so far. And I actually triple checked that my ballot was received and counted. I got a text So that was great. That. Yeah. Great. I got a text message saying, your ballot's been accepted. Like, isn't that great? Voting out here is amazing. I love voting in Colorado. Yeah. Mine was a little different because I had to go online to check, but I've double checked at this point that it was accepted. Yeah. That's so I, didn't good. Get a te- I didn't get a text. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had a similar thing, Mallory, to you is that I had a huge book with all of the propositions. And, you know, Eric and I, once we got our ballots in, we did all the research, looked into all of it and took it to a voting box and dropped it off. It was beautiful. We didn't have to wait in any crazy lines or deal with having, you know, to take time off or whatnot. So this was the easiest year to um, vote as well as in the primaries for me. And Mallory, I know you said, obviously you've moved. So you've 
dealt with that and that's actually been pretty straightforward for you. Can you think about what was it like the last time that you voted in Georgia? Well, the last time I voted in Georgia, it was for the presidential primaries. Um, And I waited in line outside during a thunderstorm for about an hour, hour and 15 minutes, something like that. Got inside, cast my ballot on a machine that may or may not be, you know, safe and secure for recording votes. And then walked out and it took me, I think, a grand total of like an hour and a half of mm-hmm. standing around, waiting around, then using a machine that, again, who knows oh, the security of it, because Georgia has had issues in the past and the present with our voting machines not being very secure. Uh, but yeah, like it, I mean, the difference was night and day. You know, I didn't have to plan, okay, what day am I going to leave work early so I could go vote or what day? Am I going to, you know, block off some time where I can go wait in line for a couple hours? Like, I really didn't really have to plan anything. Like, I just had to say, like, okay, this Saturday morning, I'm just going to do my research, fill out my ballot, and then go on a little walk and drop it off and go about the rest of my day. Like, it was, it was almost, it's a little offensive how easy it was. I mean, to be presented with, you know, the pro and con of all the amendments and propositions in that little blue book, like, they really want you, I think, to be as informed of a voter as possible. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's astounding to me coming from Georgia, where you know we didn't get any, you know, little things in the mail explaining what we were voting on. You had to go out and research it yourself and try to figure it out on your own. And it's very, it can be very confusing. Whereas here, I read my blue book. There were a few things I wasn't really sure about, so I googled them. Then I googled a whole bunch of judges. And then that was it. Like it, it was the most pleasant voting experience of my life. Like even, uh, even with me not being a Colorado resident yet, which we won't get into why that's not a thing, but I'm not a resident yet, but like, it was still super easy. The most inconvenient thing I had to do was they needed a copy of a utility bill from me, uh, showing my new address. So I had to walk a few blocks down to the UPS store and print off my utility bill. That was the most inconvenient thing I had to do. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Not too bad. No, no. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Cameron? Well, I will say one thing about Georgia is that it is one of the few Republican-led states that has done a little bit more than other states have this year, particularly. So first of all, they allow anybody to request an absentee ballot for any excuse. So that's good. Um, unlike other states like Texas, which does not allow the pandemic to be an excuse to vote by mail. But Georgia does. So I requested my absentee ballot. Uh, I was actually sent something from the Center for Voter Information to actually send in to request it. But they actually recently created a website to request it. And then unlike these other states we've been talking about, my county has 16 drop-off boxes. Mm-hmm. And my county is one of the most populous counties in Georgia. So that makes sense to have so many. So I, I did not trust the mail. I dropped off my ballots to the drop-off box that was closest to me. Then in a couple of days, it was accepted online. Now, like I said, I had to check online. I did not get a notification or anything. I had to go online to my voter page, check on there, and it was accepted. I will say that as far as this election goes, that was pretty easy. As compared to like previous elections where I voted in person, in 2018, I did wait two hours to vote. Mm-hmm. Previous to that, I had voted in a special election for my state senator. That was really easy. It took me like 10 minutes. 2016, it took me 15, 20 minutes. All three of these were at the same polling location. So that was quite different. So 2018, I guess, which is a lot higher turnout. Um, In 2012, I took a class called Mathematics of Voting as part of my undergraduate degree. Some people call it voting theory. That was what really got me interested in voting. And I've looked into voting ever since that class. So I kind of wanted to, you know, geek out on you guys to talk about voting theory. (laughs) The first thing I want to talk about is what a perfect voting system is. So the only perfect voting system that exists is when you have a two-candidate election and you do it by majority rules. So um, if you have just candidate A and B, then basically majority meaning 50% of the vote plus one vote. That's a perfect voting system. We don't live in that kind of world because we live in a world where we don't have just two candidates. We have more than two candidates. So I want to talk about what a voting system is. So when there's more than two candidates, 
when we think about a voting system, we think about people voting and they have a voter preference, meaning that even though we only place our vote for one person, we still have a preference for how the other candidates would rank in our minds, basically. Right. So basically, if you had a three-candidate election, you would prefer A over B over C in your preferences, even though, we, even though that's not necessarily how we vote. Um, in some places, they do that, but not in every place. Is that also called like ranked choice voting or something along those lines? Yeah, so in Maine, they do that, right? So they okay. do rank choice where they actually rank their people, you know, one, two, and three, They or, you know, however many candidates there are, they actually rank them. And then their election is actually something called an instant runoff, which means that whoever gets the least number of first place votes is eliminated, and then those person's second place moves up, and they add those votes to the other candidates. But one thing that I want to talk about, which is why I talk about A over B over C, is because... There is one thing that we assume with voting systems, which is that they are transitive, um, meaning, and this kind of goes back to grade school math, when you say, hey, I prefer A over B, and I prefer B over C, that means that I also prefer A over C, right? I can't say that I then prefer C over A, mm-hmm. because then it's cyclical, meaning that I, if I prefer A over B, B over C, C over A, that doesn't make sense. So I will say that we assume that a voting system is transitive. So once we have defined the voting system, then we can go into this guy named Kenneth Arrow, who was an economist, and he actually came up with five things that a voting system should meet to be a perfect voting system with more than two candidates. From that, he came up with this theorem, and we call it Arrow's impossibility theorem. And basically, he says that it's impossible for a voting system to meet these five criteria to be a, basically a perfect voting system. And one thing that I want to talk about with that is that it's important that the word impossible exists in his theorem, because it's not like we haven't found one yet. It means that we're never going to find a voting system that meets these five criteria. So I wanted to go into the five criteria, but you, I think you'll find that they are very reasonable criteria for a voting system to meet. First condition is universality, meaning that voting systems should not place any restrictions other than the transitive property we talked about and how people rank candidates in an election. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the first one. Then the second one is called positive association of social and individual values. This means that a voting system should be monotone. What that means is that changes favorable to a candidate on individual preference ballots should not cause that candidate to go from winning to losing. So this talks kind of about that instant runoff system, if we eliminated one candidate in that instant runoff system and then another candidate went from winning to losing, that's what violates a thing being monotone, right? Because we want to make, we'll make sure that preferable changes make that candidate continue to win. So let's say, how about you use like the Democratic primary election for an example? Well, we do have a system that is monotone because we vote by plurality with those primary elections. Plurality satisfies that condition because what you're, you're only voting for one candidate, right? And then you're saying, I prefer this candidate over all the other candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, if people were to change their preferences, then it wouldn't necessarily make candidate go from winning to losing. Right. Okay. I see what you're saying now. Yeah. Um, the third condition is one that a lot of voting systems fail. Um, it's called the independence of irrelevant alternatives. For this one, we want to say that we want the societal preference between two candidates in an election to depend on the voters' individual preferences between those two candidates and not the voters' rankings of any of the other candidates. So that is, we want this voting system to be unaffected by the presence or absence of irrelevant candidates. So this kind of relates to spoiler candidates, basically. So this kind of goes back to the 2000 election with Al Gore and George Bush mm-hmm. and Florida. And we're saying basically that... Um, Ralph Nader, right? Ralph Nader was the one that was a third party candidate. And we're a lot of people considered him a spoiler candidate. We knew that Ralph Nader was not going to win. So he's an irrelevant candidate, Mm -hmm. right? So we're saying, but if we eliminated him and people had their voter preferences and they, you know, voted for the other people in the election, then it might change the results of the election. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what we mean by independent from irrelevant alternatives. So we're saying that these third party candidates are irrelevant and the voting system should not change because that candidate is there or not. So now you can see how plurality fails that condition pretty easily, right? If we eliminate one candidate, then the voting might change. Right. That happens to a lot of voting systems, just to be fair. 
The fourth one is citizen sovereignty, which means that voting systems should not be imposed in any way, basically dictatorships or military rule or something like that. And then condition five is non-dictatorship. So basically a voting system should not be dictatorial. Right. And we've seen that obviously like in other countries. Right. We see that these five conditions for Arrow are pretty reasonable for a voting system to meet. So Okay, so... Are there like other countries that like have elections similar to ours that maybe satisfy like more of these requirements or like do them better? Or like, is there like a good example of like another country and how they do their voting and how that would match up to these theorems? Um, I don't know um, like what every country does. Right, right. But I know that a lot of like European countries, I guess, have parliamentary systems. And those parliamentary systems are vote by plurality, which basically just means popular vote, right? Mm-hmm. But then part of the political decision that they have made is that parliamentary government then has to build a coalition right. to mm-hmm. basically get a majority of their people to agree to something so that they have kind of like a ruling party. So that's a little different, I guess, than us when we're voting on just a presidential candidate, right? Mm-hmm. We're voting for one person. And when we vote for one person, that person is now the president and they don't build a coalition, right? They don't compromise or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I don't know that there's any other countries that do voting systems that um, maybe meet more of these criteria. Mm-hmm. But I think that politically, maybe they try to solve for that by doing these coalition governments and stuff like that. Right. right. Yeah. Do you see systems like our electoral college? Like, obviously, we'll get into the history of the electoral college, but I'm wondering, like, you know, why we have this and why we continue to have it. Because as a lot of us know, it's not just about the popular vote. It's not which candidate gets the most votes. At the end of the day, it comes down to the electoral college. Yeah. So I think electoral college is unique. I haven't heard of an electoral college in any other country, but it has its own problems. <laughs> so if we're gonna, if we're gonna turn to electoral college, I guess the most cited reason the electoral college exists is that it was a compromise between people who wanted a popular vote and people who wanted Congress to pick the president, right? So they decided to have this middle institution, the electoral college, basically saying that if the people are uninformed, then the electoral college can then choose the president, but it's not Congress choosing it. So it's not like, I guess, seen as corrupt or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think there are some other reasons that are often cited as well. Southern states saying, hey, we have a larger population, even though they have wound up counting slaves only three-fifths. Um, it kind of gave them a little bit higher population count, even still. And they wanted more power, right, by having they're having more electoral votes. Right. But then on the complete opposite side of that is smaller states saying, we should also get electoral votes. So it kind of almost helps both ways. And you can kind of make an argument in either direction. You can say, hey, like large states have a lot of power in electoral college because they have a lot of votes. But you can also say, well, small states have a lot of power also because they're treated equally with at least three electoral votes. Right. So that's the goal here is at the end of the election process, the winner is the person who gets to 270 or more votes from the Electoral right. College. Yeah. So I, I skipped over a thing. Electoral College is 538 votes. The way they get to that number is 435 representatives, um, 100 senators, and then three votes for District of Columbia. Mm-hmm. And so that's the 538. And so, yes, I just want to point out to people that it only takes one vote in each state to sway your state, right? Because it's in a winner-take-all system. Right, exactly. In most of the states, right? In your state, whoever wins the popular vote in your state gets all the electoral votes in your state. Right. Now, there are a couple states that don't do that. Nebraska and Maine, they split up their electoral votes based on district. There are alternatives to electoral college. And I have four that I want to talk about. Um, the first is plurality, which is also known as popular vote. So that would be if we didn't have an electoral college. Right. So this would require an amendment to the Constitution because it would require abolishing electoral college. There are other methods that I think wouldn't require abolishing electoral college that might be a little bit better. The first one is the district system, which is what I just talked about. Nebraska and Maine currently split their electoral votes. The way they do it is that each district gets um, one vote, and then whoever wins the popular vote in their state gets those extra two electoral votes. 
in this district system, is it still possible to like gerrymander the districts and make them skew a certain way or no? But yes, it okay. is. Yeah, I thought I figured the answer was yes as I started asking the question, but I just wanted to ask it anyway. Yes, the districts are the same as your congressional Gotcha, districts. gotcha. Okay. Now, obviously, since we since Nebraska and Maine have done it, we can see that it doesn't require a constitutional amendment. So I think it's a little easier for us to switch to a district system because it's basically up to each state to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So instead of a winner take all, it would be split up by districts. Right. So for example, like I think Georgia has 14 districts. I think six of them are Democratic leaning and eight of them are Republican leaning. So if they voted along those lines, then six votes would go to the Democratic candidate and eight votes would go to the Republican candidate. And then whoever won the popular vote in that state, whether it be the Democrat because there's more populous districts with Democrat or the Republican because there's just more Republicans in Georgia, maybe, I don't know, but then they would get the extra two electoral votes for that state. Gotcha. Okay. Obviously, with the district system, there's a little bit more possibility for a tie in the Electoral College, right? 269, 269. But I think that the district system, I think, is a little bit closer to the popular vote, right? It more closely mirrors it. Right. And it doesn't require a constitutional amendment, which I think would be very hard to pass. Mm-hmm. Um, the third method is the proportional system. That's very similar to the district system. But basically, this would involve not not technically getting rid of the Electoral College, but you wouldn't have electors voting one vote per person. You would basically say, I have 16 votes in Georgia, and however the vote is split, let's say the vote is split 49%, 48%, then 49% of my 16 votes would go to the Democrat, and 48% would go to the Republican. Gotcha. So you would technically still have the Electoral College in this system, right? Because you would still be basing it on electoral votes, but you wouldn't be like actually convening a session of the Electoral College and saying, hey, I vote one person per vote or whatever. Right. Um, So that would actually mirror the popular vote pretty closely, right? Because it's basing it exactly on popular vote. Obviously, this would also potentially produce ties. And then it also has another problem where, you know, you have decimal points that you're dealing with, right? You're saying I have like 8.25 of my electoral votes go to this candidate and 6.76 go to this candidate, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, what's approval voting? Approval voting is interesting. Approval voting, basically, again, that would be abolishing the electoral college. Basically, the way it works is that you would have each candidate on the ballot and then you would approve of that candidate or disapprove of that candidate. So you would say, if you had, you know, three candidates, A, B, and C, you would say, I approve of A, I approve of B, but I don't approve of C. Hmm. Um, So you would count up all the approval votes, and that's how you would choose the winner. What's interesting to me about approval voting is that a lot of scientific institutions use approval voting to decide things. Mm -hmm. Um, which is very interesting. So like the American Mathematical Society, the American Statistical Association, even the United Nations to elect a secretary general uses approval voting. So it's actually done in quite a few places. And the reason that people think it's it's better is because some people argue that Arrow's theorem does not apply to the system because it's not necessarily transitive. But the textbook that I read in Mathematics of Voting argues that it is transitive because you're still producing a non-cyclical ballot. You're just saying that A and B are equal I prefer A and B over C. Instead of ranking them. Right. So the condition that this fails is universality because you're imposing a restriction on how people vote. Right. Um, you're, you're saying that you have to approve or disapprove and basically your preference, you only get you know one greater than symbol, I guess, in your preference, right? You're saying I approve of these candidates and then I disapprove of these candidates. Right. And on both sides of that is you know an equal footing. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about the Electoral College. Who are these people um, for for everyone out there? Who who makes up the Electoral College? So the way that the Electoral College's people are chosen is basically up to each state. Um, so, for example, your state's party might choose the people that go to Electoral College and convene in Washington to vote. Your state governor might choose. It might be an independent commission, somebody that's associated with the elections maybe in your state that chooses. Mm-hmm. But 
typically the way that you choose these people is that you know they're very partisan right so if, if your state votes democrat then they're going to choose people that are very democrat people and they're going to vote with the democrat now some states have laws that say you're you have to vote for how the state voted right you have to go by the popular vote right and some states don't have laws like that but recently because it's happened in the 2016 election in washington state there were like four people who changed their votes four electors that changed their vote and that case went all the way to the supreme court this year and the supreme court said no you have to vote how your state voted mm-hmm. that was actually decided this year um in the supreme court Gotcha. So now it's basically the law of the land that can't change your vote. Now, it doesn't mean people aren't going to break the law, <laughs> um, but now I think it's a little bit more pressure to vote the way your state voted. I know this because it was on my ballot this year, and I read that it's on a few other state ballot initiatives this year as well. But in Colorado, um, one of the amendments we voted on for the state government is, I think it's called like the National popular vote contract or something some combination of some words like that where basically if this amendment passes in colorado and in whatever other states that it's on the ballot it basically says that colorado you know electoral votes they will vote in line with the national popular vote winner so like for example to go back to 2016 you know well i think hillary won colorado back then but you know if I guess, okay, so let's say if Georgia had this in place in 2016 and the popular vote was for Hillary in 2016, then Georgia's electoral votes would have gone to Hillary because she was the national popular vote winner. Mm, And I know know there's some other states that have it on the ballot this year as well because I think, because like you were talking about before, Cameron, about how difficult it is to pass amendments to the Constitution. This was one of the ways that, you know, people have come up with a sort of workaround to that is... If enough states, you know, sign on to this, you know, agreement, and we all agree that, you know, regardless of who wins in our state, we will, our electoral votes will go towards whoever wins the popular vote. Right. I've heard about this also. There is one caveat, which is that enough states have to sign on to that equal 270 votes. Yeah, yeah. So this this won't go into effect until enough states have signed on that it equals 270 votes. Therefore, they would always swing the election to the popular vote winner, if that makes sense. Yeah. I was just going to say that California is one of the states that's already enacted it. And so, like you said, it would have to get to 270 in order for that to actually happen. Right. Yeah. So I think one thing I mentioned earlier that I want to touch on real quick about is the apportionment of votes. So, for example, we keep talking about how Georgia has 16 votes and California has, you know, 55 votes, that kind of stuff. And how is that decided? Um, Just one thing I want to point out with that is that there's this thing called the Belinsky-Young theorem. Mm -hmm. And it's on another impossibility theorem in mathematics. And basically it says it is impossible for an apportionment method to always satisfy quota and be incapable of producing paradoxes. Basically, our government invented this system where we have all these districts in the country and we have to apportion them. And we've limited it now, right, to 435 representatives. And after each census, we reapportion the votes. And there's also an impossibility theorem with that because people don't know how to apportion those votes amongst the states without violating quota or these other paradoxes. And quota just means that we take the population of each state and we take the total number of the, the population of the country and we say, okay, population of Georgia divided by the population of the country equals, you know, this certain percentage, right? Mm-hmm. And then we multiply that percentage by the number of representatives, 435, and that gives you a, a decimal point. So for example, if we say that um, 1.518% or whatever, and we multiply that times 435, and we get, you know, 1.5. And we say that then that state's quota should not be equal to more or less than rounding down that number or rounding up that. Mm-hmm. 
So if we took the population of Georgia and we divided it by the country and we said that Georgia's quota was 13.876, right? Then Georgia would have to have either 14 representatives or 13 representatives. Mm -hmm. And that's what we call the standard quota. So everyone's recently favorite founding father, you know, Alexander Hamilton, he was the first person to come up with an apportionment method. It was called the Hamilton method. And his was find the standard quota for each state we had just talked about, give each state a number that equals that quota rounded up, rounded down. So for example, if Georgia was 13.765, they would get 13. Then you see how many seats are left over. And then you give the rest of the seats based on the highest decimal. Okay. So like if it was 13.7 for Georgia and 0.7 was the highest decimal of all the states, then Georgia would get one more. Hmm. Interesting. So that was Hamilton's method. And it's actually interesting because Hamilton proposed this, Congress passed it, and it was the first ever presidential veto by George Washington. (laughs) George Washington said, no, we're not doing that. So the other version of apportionment that is done is called the divisor method. And that's a little bit more complicated, Matt, so I'm not going to get into it. But let's just say Thomas Jefferson, he was the first person to come up with a divisor method. And those are the ones that have paradoxes. But Jefferson's method was chosen first. And then as the years have gone on, people have gone back and forth between the quota versions, like Hamilton's method, and the divisor versions. And we have finally landed on um, what's called Hill's method. That's what we use today, and it's a divisor method. I just think it's funny that we already have this impossibility theorem for voting systems. And so not only do we have that in all voting systems across the world, but then the Electoral College has its own impossibility theorem. We don't know how to apportion the votes properly. So let's talk a little bit about election night and what we expect to happen. I don't know what you guys are doing in preparation, but I took the day off for the day after the election. Obviously, as we've been hearing through the news, we may or may not know or have a good prediction as to who will be the next president. It may take a little bit longer. Obviously, we have a lot more people voting by mail and a lot of places where you can't start counting mail-in ballots until election day. Mm -hmm. So I understand that we may or may not know. I've heard some people saying that we may have a really good idea by Thursday, and we may have pretty good predictions by the next day, by Wednesday. So like I said, I took the day off. Eric took the day off. I just bought a Biden-Harris t-shirt. Oh, nice. Yeah, so now you know who I voted for, what? obviously. I can't believe oh. it, man. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a t-shirt. I'm going to wear it. I think we're going to have popcorn and like candy and stuff. I want it to be a fun oh. day. And I say that because I'm trying to not be terrified. Right. Yeah. I'm I did what I could. I did everything that I could. And so I don't have any regrets there when it comes to voting, donating, volunteering, etc., whatever. So I'm trying to be really positive, you know, not put too much stock into the polls, but the CNN poll today has Biden leading Trump uh 52% to 42%. Yeah. And so that's great to see what we need to make sure of is that people continue to turn out and vote and we continue to see the same trajectory. Yeah. What's really great is there's a lot of people voting. There's already been uh, 74 million people and that's about 54% of the way to, you know, how many people voted in 2016. Yeah. So I think that's really good news. I think that people are turning out because they realize what the stakes are. Yeah, I think for me, my company gave us the day of November 3rd off. I don't have the next day off. Nice. Um, I don't have the November 4th off, but I might be sleeping in depending on how late I stay up. (laughs) Um, But... I personally have been tracking it through 538 and their forecast. And right now they give Biden an 88% chance of winning Mm -hmm. and Trump a 12% chance of winning. So I just want to caution though that, you know, that's just like rolling a six-sided die or 
how often it rains in LA. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So like Trump still has a chance, but um, I think for me on election night, what I'm going to be looking for are the states that are good at counting all the early votes. So for example, Florida, I think that Florida, if Biden wins Florida on election night, we're going to have a really good idea of uh, whether or not he's going to win the election overall. So that's what I keep saying to people. I keep saying Biden has got to win Florida to be decisive on that night. Right. Obviously, it'd be really good if he won Florida and Georgia, you know, like like one extra state that gives us a clue, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. Georgia is also good at counting early votes as well. But, you know, these Midwestern states that decided the election last time, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, they're not as good at counting early votes. <laughs> so... Right. I'm nervous about those states, in particular Pennsylvania. I just think that Pennsylvania, ha- Biden has is in the weakest spot amongst those three states. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. He's he spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania, and Trump has too, and they're both kind of just crisscrossing all over the place. And I won't get too much into the politics of it, but I think it's been really interesting to see what they're talking about in their last days leading up to the election, you know, Mm -hmm. and contrasting that, you know, between the two where we see Trump is, you know, rallying his base and he's been seen to, um, or he's been heard kind of floating new conspiracy theories and things like that. And, you know, straining his supporters in the middle of the, an airfield. Yeah. Yeah. That whole issue with, (laughs) Yeah, that that was really interesting to read about. Once again, just a good example of how much Trump cares about the people that vote for him. But yeah, it's it's him looking a little scared and becoming desperate and throwing out all kind of allegations and you know, the world's going to end if Biden becomes president and he's corrupt and they're going to take your guns. And I thought something that was really funny, not funny, but funny, is he's been trying to really appeal to suburban white women. Yeah. And at one of his um his rallies the other day, he said something along the lines of suburban white women, I'm going to get your husbands back to work you know, you want them to get back to work or whatever. It was really weird. Yeah. Like, where are we living in the forties? Oh like God. it was just a really <laughs> odd thing <laughs> to hear. My, my favorite thing that he said at a rally about suburban white women was he said, suburban white women, please like me. You should like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And just today he started to, Um, talk about how much he doesn't want to really be on the road he's had like he's been in some cold places and (laughs) he's been saying in his rallies like if i didn't have to be here i'd be in the white house and you know it's raining and it's cold and i mean you don't give a fuck about people and be done with it my god yeah it's just like what else do you need the guy to say to realize that he really does not care oh, about anybody? No. He doesn't even want to be there with his supporters. And he's telling them <laughs> that. And they're just laughing in the background. I'm like, what are we laughing about? Like, it's just really <laughs> disturbing. And then you see Biden. He's been like really, really like on one message. And that is Trump has mishandled COVID. We need to fight to get back on track, get control of this virus, and also to gain back the humanity or the the morality of our country. You know, that Trump has come in and he's turned everything really nasty and inflammatory and, you know, that Biden is going to bring back decency. Um, So it's been interesting to kind of see what they're all talking about in their last days. So Mallory, how do you think the night's going to go for you? (laughs) Um, So I think unlike y'all, I, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be watching coverage on election night um, just because uh, 2016 was quite a traumatic night for me. 
Um, I went over to one of my good friend's house. We had a bottle of champagne in the freezer. We were ready to pop that champagne after like an hour. And then obviously we all know how that story ends. Um, And I told myself that I would not do that to myself again. And that looking back on 2016, I wish I would have had like that one last final night of happiness. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I've decided this year... Um, that I, I'm not going to be watching any coverage on TV. Um, I honestly think I might just turn off my phone, my iPad, everything, and just like have a movie marathon, watch some concerts, either on YouTube or something, maybe check in on my phone, you know, at a couple points during the night. But I, no matter how it goes, I'm going to give myself this one last day of, I wouldn't even call it bliss because it's not a happy time right now, but you know, one right. more night of if he wins, if Trump wins again and he's reelected, if I can just have one night of not as awfulness as what would come if he wins another four years. So I, you know, I in 2016, like I had a Google Doc open of like, all you know, if Hillary wins this state, then she needs to do this. And this is her path to victory. And I can't do that to myself again. My, <laughs> mental, yeah. my mental health cannot take another night of that so i'm going to be curating some movies this week and maybe some concerts and just trying to enjoy the night and hopefully wake up to good news the next day or get some good news in the days to follow right that sounds good i think that's healthy (laughs) (laughs) i'm a glutton for punishment obviously it'll be interesting cameron you're going to be watching of course Of course. Over there with your math. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be, I, I'm an avid follower of the 538 live blogs. Oh, sorry. So I'm I'll still, be reading. I'm still salty about 2016. Sorry. Yeah. I'll be, yeah. I'll be following their, their coverage and stuff and uh, looking at that. And yeah, I mean, 2016 was pretty heartbreaking, but I just, I can't not follow it. And I've been getting increasingly. Yeah. I've been getting increasingly more anxious as time is going closer and closer to the election, but I have the next two days off. So that's going to help hopefully. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'll have like, you know, like a long four day weekend. They'll just have one day of work on Monday and then I'll have Tuesday off again. So yeah, that's That's pretty good. Yeah. So I should be okay. Like be able to more, you know, calm down as time goes on from now. I'm getting more anxious as I've been getting closer to my days off and hopefully now I can start to get less anxious. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's getting close. It's almost less here. Than a week away. So I know hopefully the people that are listening have voted or they have a plan to vote on election day. Once again, very important election. And hopefully people have learned a little bit more about, you know, our voting system in America and, you know, hopefully you can kind of keep that in mind. We'll see what happens on Tuesday. Yeah. Oh, we will see. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you all for coming to talk about voting. And I'm sure that we'll be speaking soon. All right. Bye. <laughs> bye.